At Consumer Cellular, you get the same exact coverage as the largest carriers, but for up to half the cost. Same thing, up to half the cost. Up to half the cost for the same thing. 50% the money for 100% the same thing. I hope I'm making myself clear. Consumer Cellular. When freedom calls, we're here to answer. Call us at 1-888-FREEDOM. Half the cost savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single-line 5-gigabyte data plan with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single-line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plan offered by T-Mobile and Verizon May 2023. Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Pod Save the People. Excited about this episode, we have... Terry McAuliffe, the governor of Virginia. We have Nikita Oliver, who's running to be the mayor in Seattle. And we have Andy Slavitt joining us again uh, to give us an update on where we are with healthcare. And it's the first time that the four of us have all been in the same room to do the news. Me, Sam, uh, Brittany, and Clint. We're all recording the news together this week in person, which is exciting. Now, before we jump in, I'll just say one word about how systems come apart, how systems came together. So I'm reminded that we didn't get here overnight, that we didn't get to this deep injustice in one day or one week or one year or one decade or one century, that this is the accumulation of decisions that were made by people and that systems rarely break all at once, but they often break in pieces. And part of our work as organizers, as citizens, as activists is to understand and identify what those pieces are that'll have the most impact and work to change them. Because we know that when one piece falls and another piece falls and another piece falls, that that is how systems change and that we build when things come down. Now, I say that because there's some people who feel like because the world has not changed today in the way they want it to or tomorrow in the way that they want it to, that the work is for naught. But when we understand that we are part of a long legacy of struggle, that pushes and prods and changes and builds and pieces, I think that helps us think about the work more strategically. And this is not an endorsement of incrementalism. This is not saying that mass change cannot happen quickly. This is understanding that the beauty of this work is that we all approach it differently, that we have a common understanding of what the world is that we want to live in, a world of equity and justice. And we might differ about how we get there. And the differing about how we get there is often the levers that we want to press. It's about the pieces that we identify as the most important. But we know that the world we want to live in is a similar world of justice and equity. So keep the fight. Know that the way that you fight in this space is important and that we all don't have to fight in the same way to fight for the same world. Let's get to it. And here to give us a quick update on the healthcare conversation in the Senate is Andy Slavitt, the former head of Obamacare and a friend of the pod. Andy, it's always great to have you back on the pod for a quick update on what's going on with healthcare. It's always good to be here, Dre. What would the bill as we know it today do to hospitals and what would it do to my private insurance? Because I think so much of the conversation has been about Medicaid and Medicare in the public, but it hasn't been about how people who have private insurance are impacted. And I think they're impacted, but how? And so two questions, what does it do to hospitals? Because I thought I read something about it doing something to hospitals and then what does it do to uh, my private insurance. So if you get your if you get your insurance through your job, uh, there's two ways that you could be affected here. The first is that the CBO estimates that four million people will actually lose that coverage. That the employer will no longer offer that coverage. That's the first way. The second way actually affects more people, which is that since the ACA, employers cannot. Uh, put things on your insurance policy like lifetime caps. Lifetime cap is something that says 
we, the insurance policy will only pay up to a certain amount of money, like a million dollars over the course of a lifetime. Those are illegal under the ECA. If this bill were to pass, that would no longer be illegal, and we would be back to a state where people could get policies from their employer that had things on them like lifetime caps. And before the ACA, about half of all policies people got through their employer had a lifetime cap on them. What's the impact of the bill on hospitals? The impact of this bill on hospitals is extremely negative. Um, And the reason that it's negative is because when the uninsured rate goes up, so does something called the uncompensated care that the hospital provides. And that means the people who currently are going to the hospital today that are getting paid by insurance companies or the hospitals getting paid by Medicaid, um, they would not be getting paid by them. And the most of the time when someone who is uninsured goes to a hospital, they can't afford to pay the bill. So hospital bad debt would go up. And as a result of hospital bad debt going up, they would raise everybody else's premiums And, of course, that also means that personal bankruptcies would go up. Personal bankruptcies have been cut in half since the beginning of the ACA. Uh, They would begin to go back up to where they were before. I heard a lot about the Cruz Amendment. In my rough understanding, I believe that the Cruz Amendment would lead there to be two insurance pools instead of one. And Andy, can you can we walk through quickly what an insurance pool is? Is that before the ACA... There were no pools. Not everybody had the access to swim or the right to swim. It was sort of like the Wild Wild West with insurance. So people could, uh, insurance companies could deny you insurance because of your health condition and a lot of wild things. ACA sort of changed that and said everybody has a right to be in a pool. Everybody has a right to swim. Is that correct? Yeah, let's start how, with how it works today. Today, um, essentially, the pool that you're in defines the rules of the road and how much you can be charged. And today, thanks to the ACA, everybody is in the same pool. There's the same set of rules for everybody and everything costs the same. Just like Social Security, right? Just like Social Security, exactly. Everybody gets the fair share. Now, what the Cruise Amendment would do is it would create two pools. One would be a pool that would be designed specifically for younger and healthier people. And the other pool would be the pool that it's for everybody else. And the result of doing that, the result of creating two pools is one of them deep, one of them shallow, is that the one that doesn't have the young and healthy people in it quickly becomes very difficult to afford. And even the sick people uh, soon have to start dropping out of it. So it's not a concept that works. It's similar to what we talked about in a couple episodes ago of the high-risk pool. And so it's something that a lot of people have a lot of skepticism about. Given how unpopular the bill is, why are why are they still fighting for it? I just don't get it. Well, I think to a certain extent, we have to think about the Republican lawmakers as living in 2016 and the politics of 2016 as opposed to the realities of 2017. In 2016, they didn't expect to be governing. It was all ACA bad, and that's what helped them win elections. If they get to 2017 and the senators go home for Fourth of July week, and they come to realize 
they just have a bill that nobody likes. And that as much as they may have campaigned in 2016 on getting rid of the ACA, in 2017, they have an extremely unpopular bill that people are going to get hurt by. So I think they're really still grappling with um, this new role they have of actually having to govern and make decisions. And I think that's why we're seeing the real difficulty they're having passing this uh, in this legislation through, and I think we're going to see them wrestle with that over the next couple of weeks. Andy, what's the timeline that we have to be looking for? Okay, so here's the timeline. This Thursday or so, we can expect that the Senate will release additional language on the amendment to the bill that went to the CBO before, the bill that's in front of us now. Then uh, we will, on Monday, which will be the next week, we will see um, a CBO score, and that CBO score will again evaluate how many people lose coverage or gain coverage. And that's the score that's going to be debated on and voted on. Now, if in that week Mitch McConnell and the Republicans feel like they have enough votes, uh, we'll see a vote by the end of that week. If they don't feel like they have enough votes, they probably won't vote. And they'll, they may make additional changes, although they're going to quickly be running out of time. And they may bring the bill back up the following week, which would then be the last week in July. That is really their last opportunity to get something passed. Well, Andy, thank you so much for helping us understand healthcare a little bit more. Uh, and uh, thanks for keeping us posted. I'm always glad to do it. And happy birthday. Don't go anywhere. More Politics the People is coming. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondery's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, the Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now, what's the first thing that you'd do if you had a ton of extra time in a day? Maybe I'd take a nap, go for a run, talk to some friends. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But the question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Now, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you help you process the world around you, help you think through the most important things, how you spend your time, where you spend your energy, especially your emotional energy. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash people 
today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash people. So now it's the news with me, Sam, the most incredible data scientist you know, Clint, the resident academic on the pod, and Brittany, a former member of the Ferguson Commission and appointed by President Obama to the task force on 21st century policing. Let's get to it. All right. This is Sam at Sam Sway on Twitter, and I'm joined by... Hey, y'all. It's Brittany Packnet, Miss Pacchetti on all social media. What's going on, everybody? This is Clint Smith, Clint Smith the Third. That's Clint Smith III on Twitter and Instagram. And this is DeRay at DeRay. It is exciting. We're all together uh, for the first time in person doing the news. And it's your birthday. Hey, pew, pew, pew. <laughs> Do DJ Khaled. Yeah. Oh, that's the anniversary. That's the anniversary. Dang, you meant um, happy birthday. Right. To you know, we are just a celebratory people. Yeah. So happy birthday, Duray. Thank you. It's great. Uh, it's great to be around the best people I know. For my birthday, so. Cool. So I'll start with the news. My first piece of news is a mistrial. Uh, A Tulsa police officer killed uh, Jeremy Lake, um, a black teenager, uh, two years ago. And there have actually been three mistrials. The third mistrial was declared uh, this past week uh, in the case. And what's interesting about this, you know, we've we've seen many mistrials and uh, failures to get convictions from, you know, Sam Dubose's case and Philando Castile and others. Um, what's interesting about this case is that in all three cases, there were situations where you, know, you need to get a unanimous verdict. Um, there were 12 jurors. Uh, and in each case, there was only – so the first case, there were two jurors that did not want to return a conviction. Ten did. In the second case, it was only one juror that didn't want a conviction. Uh, but 11 did. Um, and then this latest case, we still are, are waiting to see what the exact results were. Um, but what's fascinating about it is, you know, a juror from the case actually posted on Facebook that there were two people, two jurors there that literally refused to even discuss the case uh, and would not. They they said that these jurors were so prejudiced, they wouldn't even engage in the case. And no matter what argument was made, uh, they said that they wouldn't actually convict the officer. Um so, you know, it goes to show you as they're selecting folks, you select 12 people, 11 of which were white. Um, and if one of those people uh, is so racist, they don't even want to engage in the facts of the case, then you cannot get a conviction in these cases. It's a sobering piece of news to begin with. Sam, what, what are the overall stats on convictions, officers charged relative to the number of people killed by police? Yeah, so fewer than 1% of cases where somebody's killed by police uh, and officers convicted of any crime. Uh, and a even smaller fraction of those is actually an officer being convicted of murder. Uh, and what's interesting about that, even when officers are convicted, they often serve less time than a civilian that will be convicted. Oh, that's interesting. Um, so like in Georgia, for example, uh, there was a case where uh, an officer you know, killed a, a black man and was able to serve. He only served a, a few months and was able to serve his sentence only on the weekends. Uh, and this was like the only time that they had made the decision to do that. And it was because he was a police officer. This point about um, jury selection and jury pools has me thinking about action that we all need to be taking. Right. And so given that juries are selected from pools of registered voters, that makes this conversation about voter disenfranchisement all the more relevant. Uh, it's important that we you know, connect the dots all the way from those conversations to jury selections to the, the lack of convictions. But it means that 
us showing up when we get that jury summons matters. It means that um, making sure that we register folks in our communities, that we register the young people in our lives is important. It means that fighting voter disenfranchisement that we're seeing all across the country, um, especially across the South, um, is, is of critical importance because otherwise, by the even by the time we get to a trial, if we get a trial, which we also know is very rare, that the odds are already stacked against a conviction. Uh, it also makes me think about the iconography of the police in mainstream uh, media is that there has been like decades of shows about the police that just like valorize them as the beacons of safety and security and that they are the arbiters of justice. And we have not seen many things in pop culture, especially in the past, that showed the other side, right? Something that I've I've come to understand is that many of the things that we sort of uh, that are widely understood as reforms in a in a sort of positive and more progressive direction around policing, like community policing, for example, uh, can oftentimes have uh, adverse effects um, that people don't necessarily anticipate. A good book on this is Elizabeth Hinton's From the War on Poverty to the War on Crime. Uh, and she's talking about this sort of history of uh, community policing programs and all these different initiatives that happened under Carter, under Reagan, under Clinton, um, and how actually what happened is that these enhanced the sort of surveillance state mm-hmm. that existed in many of these communities in a way that I hadn't fully considered. Um, and then you see the extent to which, you know, quote unquote, community policing has been used in in more insidious ways to actually um, extend the power of the state in the lives of black folks in ways that uh they, that are then incredibly harmful uh, and detrimental to the lives of, of black folks in other contexts. And just to give, uh, just to flesh that out, so when Clint talks about community policing, it's this idea that if police are present in communities, that they will help either with crime prevention or respond to crime really quickly. So this is, uh, in so many ways, a race-based way of thinking about policing. If you remember, Brittany, when we were in, I think, Sam, you were, when we were with Valerie Jarrett in the White House, yes, and we pushed her on this idea of community policing as not necessarily being a, a positive thing, it was because if in in black communities, low-income communities, you all of a sudden flood them with police. You now have a whole different set of eyes that are always watching. And you think about, like, the Upper West Side People aren't, like, watching every single, like, privileged white kid get off the bus and, like, walk home and da-da-da. Like, that's not how they think about what they need for safety. But in low-income communities, that seems to be uh, the case. And Elizabeth Hinton will be a guest on Pod Save the People hey. at some point soon, which we're excited <laughs> about. Uh, Clint didn't know that. Yeah, uh, but let's go, we, to, um, let's go to Brett. Oh, I was just going to say that if— if they want community policing as badly in Georgetown as they say we need it in Anacostia, then it's a different conversation, right? So for my news today, I have been paying attention to a couple of things coming out of Washington specific to uh, what life is looking like for federal staffers. Two things really piqued my interest. One is that um, there has been a major increase in the gender wage gap at the White House. Um, On average in America... Uh, women make um, the wage gap is about 17 percent at the White House. It is 37 percent. Um, that is increased from the last two years uh, in the Obama White House. Um, and so, you know, 
I think there are lots of reasons why that is fascinating, especially given that um, Ivanka Trump has supposedly kind of come out as a um, as an as an advocate for women and for equity and for pay equity specifically on on um, on Equal Wage Day. Uh, the other thing that we've seen is uh, a study that was done on Democratic staffers, and we found out um, that Democratic Senate staffers are not nearly as diverse as I think everyone would like to claim. The study on the gender wage gap came from American Energy. Enterprise Institute, which is um, a conservative think tank. So clearly <laughs> that no one can kind of question the validity of this because they're talking about the Trump White House. Um, but the news that has come out about Democratic Senate staffers is that 32 percent of staffers are, quote, non-Caucasian. I would just call them people of color. 54 um, percent of the staffers are women. 46 percent are men. So the majority of Democratic Senate staffers are indeed white women. Uh, and I find that interesting because often we talk about the Trump administration, but as a former federal employee, myself, I know that neither representative diversity nor true equity exists at, at, the, at these important levels of decision making. Um, and I'm glad to see that uh, Democratic Senate leaders are taking this issue seriously. But especially as a person who leads institutions, this is a moment where we really have to question what we are pushing for, whether or not we are pushing for representative diversity or whether we actually want to move toward overrepresentation of marginalized people so that we can push for the kind of policies that will um, create equity in the world. I'd also be very interested to see what kind of concentration um, exists for people of color in senior positions, right, or, or, the, or the majority of those people of color in more junior roles. Um, is there a gender wage gap there? And also moving beyond color, so looking at how many... F- Staffers are disabled, are LGBTQ, um, immigrated to this country. I wouldn't be surprised if those numbers looked even more stark than the the basic diversity numbers we're seeing. But I often question our institutions who are not willing to have that conversation more than just a diverse a, a, a conversation about representative diversity. So, just things to pay attention to. Before uh, we get into our responses, what can you define what representational diversity is and yes. what the other term is used? So representational diversity means that an institution is as diverse as the society that it's in. So what this study has found is that um, for many groups of color at uh, at the Senate level, they are as represented um, as we are in society. So um, there are about 13 percent Democratic staffers on the Senate side um, are African-American. Right. And that is ab- about on par with what we are in society. Remind you, that's not. Um, all of the Senate, that's just Democratic staffers, right? So actually, we're underrepresented. But the question is, are we going to be willing to overrepresent and oversaturate those spaces um, because true equity means promoting marginalized voices? Yeah. No, I mean, that's really fascinating, especially when you factor in, you know, the Republicans who control Congress, have more Senate seats, have more House seats, uh, and are so underrepresentative um, of, you know, every group that isn't white and male. Um, I think the last time I looked at the stats, it was like 89 percent of the House of Representatives, the Republican House members were white men. Um, And I haven't seen the staffers, but I remember that picture with Paul Ryan and um, like Mike Pence and like everybody was white. And then and this was like this is the new Democratic or the new Republican Party. Um, same as the old Republican Party. (laughs) (laughs) So this is interesting because I think that, you know, part of what I think a lot about when I think about this sort of imbalance is uh, a stat I heard a couple years ago that uh, white men are 31 percent of the American population, but hold 65 percent of all elected positions in the country. Um, And so that's kind of obviously an alarming statistic. uh, But to Bernie's point, only touches 
on the surface, because I think part of what we don't often consider is the extent to which the public policy and legislative uh, agendas of these offices, of these political officials is driven by the people in the office. Like it is the, you know, what Cory Booker comes out with or what Lindsey Graham comes out with or what uh, McCain comes out with. These are all things that are driven by the legislative teams in those offices. And they're the ones that are coming up with ideas and presenting them to uh, to the senator. And and the, ultimately, those are what become um, representative of the public policy portfolios that these elected officials have. And we know that people bring their experiences to their work, right? So one of the, you know, people ask, like, why does diversity matter? It's like, we believe that when more experiences show up, like the outcome is better. And that when those experiences sort of, uh, when there's tension within or between those experiences that the outcome is like more representative in the end. So I think about like myself, who I think about addiction completely differently because both my parents were drug addicts. So like when I, when I think about what recovery looks like, when I think about like the opioid crisis, as we call it now, like all of that is, uh, encapsulated by the fact that I grew up in a community of recovery. And I think that all of us have similar stories about like what our experiences have done for us. And uh, that can't be discounted and it can't be said enough. So a couple episodes ago, I brought up a 2003 study by Diva Pager um, that sort of outlined the history of uh, the history and the magnitude of uh, discrimination in the workplace against those who are formerly incarcerated and against those who are black um, who aren't formally incarcerated, right? And to go back to that, the some of the findings are that if you have a criminal record, um, you are 50% less likely to get a call back for an interview. If you are a black person without a criminal record, uh, you are still less likely to get a call back for an interview than a white person with a criminal record, uh, which is an incredibly jarring statistic. Um, and, and she wrote a book um, called Marked, which I, I recommend for everybody to check out. So uh, what I'm talking about this week is is a sort of extension of that research, which is uh, perhaps even more unsettling than, than that initial research um, that happened in 2003. So part of the public policy uh, agenda that has been shaped by the study that Diva Pager did was that, oh, well, what we need to do is make sure that we uh, don't have, that employers don't have the opportunity to know before somebody steps in the door, whether or not they have been convicted of a felony or not. And that's often that's sort of dis- discussed in the sort of popular discourse as uh, ban the box, right? And so Obama, before he left office, uh, did a ban the box initiative for um, federal employees and, and is sort of widely seen as a sort of universally good uh, project or endeavor to, to um, push forward uh, by folks on the left and folks interested in criminal justice reform. Uh, a, a recent study and a couple of different recent studies have actually shown that uh, ban the box might not be this sort of uh, be as helpful as we initially assumed or, or hoped it might be. On this podcast, we've talked a lot about the link between blackness and criminality and how regardless of whether or not someone has been convicted of a crime, oftentimes black folks are uh, perceived as being criminal even when they're not necessarily. So while we typically think that ban the box is a sort of universal good, this study complicates this that that assumption a lot because it found that uh, the net effect of ban the box is actually a decline in employment for young, low-skilled black men. And so that what happens if you ban the box is that employers will then make an assumption about the criminality of the young person 
um, or the person coming in to apply for the job. And so if they don't aren't able to see a check mark or a lack of a check mark on the on the box that it does or does not exist, um, if it's not there, they simply assume that that young person is is a criminal. So actually what happens is that uh, they found that folks who have criminal records, their ability to get callbacks for interviews increased marginally. But folks who didn't have criminal records when the box was banned, their actually their opportunities in getting jobs actually went down pretty significantly because they uh, were assumed to be uh, criminals when they were not. And so this is specific to uh, young black folks who don't have high school degrees. So we're thinking about a lot of these service industry positions. We're thinking a lot about um, a lot of fast food jobs and sort of entry level service position um, jobs that uh, that oftentimes, you know, folks need to to put food on their table. And, and otherwise, you know, if you're continuously being discriminated against in that uh, in that economic space, um, then you find other ways to to put food on the table. And that often puts people in desperate positions and um, makes them feel like they need to do things that uh, they otherwise wouldn't do. So let me make sure I've got this straight. If you're black yep. and you're applying for one of these jobs, you're screwed with the box and without the box. Yes. Basically, period, end of sentence. Yeah. Which, given conventional wisdom, actually doesn't surprise me. And yet, we really thought we had a solution, right, with ban the box. And what you're saying is, if you do have a criminal record, the banning the box actually doesn't help you that much, but it significantly harms folks who we just assume to be criminal, which right. who happen to look like all of us. Yeah, so the net effect of the policy is that while... Uh, the people that we are intending to help, who are those who are formerly incarcerated or those who have felony convictions, um, they their ability to get a job does go up by a bit. But when you take everything into consideration, the folks who actually uh, were not the intended targets of this policy, who are uh, young black folks who don't have felony convictions, they are detrimentally, significantly um, affected by uh, the implementation of this sort of policy. So I think it, it very much complicates the way that we think about uh, ban the box, and which is a sort of microcosm for how we think about, you know, a lot of criminal justice reform and thinking, you know, these things that seem to be like uh, definite goods or definite uh, progressive mm-hmm. uh, policy agendas actually um, when the reality is a, a bit more complicated than than it seems. Wow. Yeah. So it sounds like uh, a box won't fix racism. Mm. <laughs> Just period. Like, ding, 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 ding. Period. That's the, That's the name of the <laughs> right. A box right. won't fix racism. And, um, Put that yeah, on my I mean, it's <laughs> and it, it does point to the the limits of policy, mm-hmm. right? Um, I don't think like policy will get us out of you know centuries of anti blackness and racism because it's so deeply embedded in the culture. That the way that those that those policies are interpreted in the context of that culture, and so you know even if it is a policy that is designed to help folks who um, have been form- who are formally incarcerated, um, ultimately that policy then gets interpreted and implemented in ways that people who are responding to it, employees that are responding to it, are applying their prejudices to that new situation, the application without the box. Um, and that creates it still creates an inequitable outcome. Um, and I think that that speaks to the need for, you know, policy advocacy to be paired with uh, that. It can't come alone without cultural change. Um, otherwise, we're not going to get to a place where those policies are able to really uh, achieve their desired impact. It is this uh, thing, too. Uh, we talk about and to 
sort of build on what you said, Sam, this idea that systems and structures often change people's behavior, but neighbors change people's minds, right? And that the storytelling work that changing people's minds uh, demonstrably changes the way that people actually navigate systems and structures. And this is a great example of, like you said, Brittany, people thought that we had a fix, right? Like, and this is a structural fit. Like in, in the absence of racism, it is a structural fix. But in the presence of racism, because hearts and minds haven't changed as much or at the same rate or at all, uh, this is... This has proven not to be as uh, helpful as we once thought. It also makes me think about how many other policies operate like this. Like how many other things do well-intentioned people put forth thinking it was going to be the salve and then it turns out not to actually be. I think about body cameras, not to completely go 100% police in this episode, but you know, we talk about body cameras and Sam, you have pushed before that the uh, body cameras might not be the solution, but we have not gotten any charge without video footage. But we've also seen body cameras be a tool of surveillance in communities in ways that were just, that was not the advocate's intent when they put them forth. So this is what that has me thinking of. You know, I I completely agree, Sam. Um, as I was listening to what you were saying, Clint, I was thinking policy can't solve everything racism caused. Uh, and that much is clear. This also just has me thinking about all of the ways in which bias shows up in hiring. Obviously, we've discussed it in the context of the police, but that is happening in every industry, right? Any place somebody is being employed, bias has to be examined. And it's not just biased against, right? It's also that great like-me bias that we often don't discuss. Um, that is that is how you can end up with industries where everyone looks like the boss because the boss is hiring folks that are just like him or her. Uh, and... Um, Sorry, I didn't mean to use a single binary of gender right there. Um, but, um, you know, I've, I've had to examine that myself as I hire people, right? Am I am I giving additional uh, bias for black women in my head in my process, right? Am I giving additional bias for people who've been educated similarly as I have, right? Um, and And— Additionally, how are the ways that anti-blackness specifically is manifesting in hiring? Because anti-blackness is something that people of multiple races possess. Um, and when uh, we were talking about iconography earlier, when the icon, one of the pieces of iconography of blackness has been criminal for so long, the assumption uh, can't really be escaped, to your point, Clint, whether there's a box or not. So here we are. And I think that it's important to to understand in all of these things, as, as most of us do, that this is not does not mean that there is some Ku Klux Klan wearing white supremacist sitting in every uh, boss's office, you know, across the country who sees a young black person come in and is saying, I'm never going to hire that black person because I want to perpetuate racism. And it, like it is never that that clear cut, right? I mean, sometimes it is, right? The Ku Klux Klan was just in well, Charlottesville. Like at the White House, you know, maybe. well, maybe. You know. <laughs> oh, <I said. laughs> you know, details, details, details. <laughs> details. Know, only in Bannon's office. But um, but I think that it is important. Part of what happens, I think, is that people are so uh, unwilling to acknowledge that they may have biases, that they may have prejudices. And so what happens is that they they pretend as if they don't and they try to uh, suggest that that does not at all shape the nature of how they make decisions. Instead of what I think is more helpful is a recognition that we all have biases. We all have prejudices that uh, are shaped to varying degrees by the sets of experiences we've had, by the sort of media media uh, that we all inundate, uh, and that people, you know, a black person is not 
uh, immune from from that same sort of thing, right? I think that's why we see so much of the conversation around policing being um, complicated by, you know, a black cop and a, and a black victim, because a lot of times black folk carry those same biases um, to varying degrees that that others do. But I say that because I think it's important for folks to do the work of recognizing that they have a bias and then doing the sort of second step of checking that bias after instead of pretending that that first bias doesn't exist. So, right. So for that boss, what does it look like for that young black person to come into the office and for them to make realize that they are making an assumption about uh, the criminality of that young person and instead of saying, no, 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 that's not what I'm doing. I'm not racist. I'm not prejudiced. Instead to say, man, I really just criminalized that young person when I don't know anything about them. I should really trouble and problematize where that's coming from. Why do I think that? What are the systems and structures and media that have made me? Th- and, and so to push themselves to think more critically about their own assumptions so that that second step can happen where they are pushing themselves past the prejudice to to perform and engage in these, uh, you know, in this context, in that sort of interview or job opportunity in a more equitable way. And and that is, that takes work, right? And that demands a sort of deep and constant sort of purposeful and proactive uh, thought process around understanding that these are things that we all carry and it's not helpful to pretend that we don't. Now, before I go into my news, I forgot to ask you at the beginning, uh, what's the update on Baby J? Baby J is, uh, he's moved from sleeping an uh, uh, hour and a half every night to two hours every night. So oh. I never thought 30 minutes could feel so it's a good. Big win. Um, Do you like track this in Excel or something? Man, I don't track it. In, I feel like there's a, you know, the Excel of my. Of my heart. Is, oh. is where it's, where it's uh, that should be the name of your next academic article. <laughs> right, um, but it's uh, babies are wild, man, because, you know, one day they love to be swaddled. The next day they hate the swaddle. One day they like being burped in this position. And then they're like, I hate being burped in that position. They're like very, he's such a bougie baby. Just like, <laughs> and I was like, oh my gosh, you got, you need to pick one thing and stick with it. But It sounds like he's making you, like, check your ego, though. You know, like, we are. Do you love me today? Keeps you on your toes. On. He Is does. it four weeks? Uh, six weeks. Six weeks. Ooh, six I'm weeks. sorry. I skipped some out. Yeah. Out here. Baby J. <laughs> there we go. Um, so my news is we don't often talk about we talk, there's a lot of, in the public there's a lot of conversation about private prisons and we should talk about private prisons prisons shouldn't be for profit there's not as much talk about the privatization of services in public prisons and I am recently fascinated so we're going to launch something soon around mass incarceration again Sam is probably looking at me sideways so I'm not going to look at Sam but we <laughs> want something soon about it and I'm excited but there are all these facets that we don't talk about uh, in public one is about healthcare so the three largest health care facility, mental health facilities in the country are prisons. If you didn't know, that's not actually my news. I'm just fascinated by that. But in Alabama, they contract out all of the health care, the medical services to a private medical vendor, Corazon Health. And uh, there is a really interesting article that was written in the main newspaper in Alabama that talks about the access that inmates have or don't have to their health records. So there's a guy who was trying to change his own behavior for care and he just couldn't get access to his health records. So like the law says that people have access to it, but uh, he was told that the warden actually had to sign off on whether he could see his medical records or not. And he went through this long process of actually obtaining access to any, his colonoscopy, anything that had happened to him while he was in 
in jail. And it, to me, is a, a question about, like, we don't often talk about, like, the rights that people have once confined because mm-hmm. society has largely thrown people away, that you're in jail and you should just have to deal with it. And we just don't think about medical records. Like, I hadn't thought about medical records as something that are like a, a thing in prison until I read this. And I was like, wow, that makes sense. And if you get like a blood test, or you get sick or anything like that, like you should actually easily be able to get access to your medical records. Like, I don't know what the harm is there. And I just wanted to sort of bring that here because I hadn't thought about it. Also touch on this idea of the privatization of services in public prisons. And hopefully I have an expert on from um, somebody in Alabama to talk about this more. I've talked to somebody offline, but haven't scheduled them yet. Uh, so I wanted to offer that. Yeah, it, it reminds me of um, in Texas recently, I was just in a a panel where a legislator from Texas was talking about how they just signed a law that prevents people who are incarcerated from having their Medicaid canceled. Um, and that up till now, the practice was like, if you were on Medicaid and you got locked up, like it was just canceled. Um, and now, Why? right, it doesn't make any sense, right? It's not like... Like, if anything, you need that more. Right. And they're just, like, intentionally, like, denying that. But we know policy you. is often not written right. about what people need, right? It's about right. who who can make a profit. Yeah. So, I mean, just the, the breadth of services that are denied to you while you're in prison, uh, that often is incredibly hard, if not impossible, to even get back when you're out. Um, I think that's huge. And then just the cost prohibitive factor to some of those services you were talking about, whether it's calls, um, or, you know, basic needs and you know, buying things in the commissary, um, just making things so out of reach when you're in your, your level of highest need, your place in your life where you, you, you are in the worst place and yet you can't get the services to help you push through it. I think that is, it is like sort of evil in a way, right? It's, it's hard to describe. Yeah, but it's easy to be evil when you've negated the humanity of the people who suffer, right? And that's what we do to people who are incarcerated. We treat folks as though their worst mistake, their worst moment, um, their worst decision, um, or the the result of a circumstance in which they were put um, defines their entire being, defines their whole life. If I can ignore your humanity, then I can make you suffer. I remember I was a part of a leadership program that shall not be named. Um, And one of our, I kid you not, learning modules was to take one of the only tours of um, a prison in in the city um, that happened like all year. And um, I quit the program (laughs) because I got into a lot of arguments with people who insisted upon learning by by like viewing people like animals in a zoo in their worst moment. And it occurred to me in that moment that when people are behind bars, we just often don't see them as people. Um, And that is why people can be so adamant about taking away their resources, removing access to your own medical records, right? Because I just, I don't see you as a human being. Um, And I think that too often that is the true foundation of of some of the policies and systems that we interact with. Uh, But people don't actually, we don't actually want to face up to that conversation. It's why I'm glad that this conversation around um, healthcare has not just been academic and it's not just been about policy. It's also been about how mean spirited and how inhumane these practices and ideas are um, because we have to pay attention to that because I think it's so often at the root. And I think I'm really glad that we've brought up this conversation about the privatization of services in prison rather than uh, private prisons as an institution as a whole, because I think that uh, 
this this sort of privatization of services is something that is I'm not going to say more dangerous, but is equally dangerous to to that of private prisons as a whole. I actually wrote about this um, about a year ago, and and the healthcare provider that you mentioned, Ray, is actually a group that has been sued uh, multiple times. So, for example, in California. Uh, the Corazon Health, which is a private for-profit healthcare firm that serves more than 320,000 inmates in 25 states, was sued for failing to provide adequate healthcare uh, to a prison who died under the a prisoner who died under the company's supervision. They found that they were using licensed vocational nurses instead of registered nurses, which is a decision that actually saved Corazon. Uh, 35% on the salary of each nurse, and then Corazon was. Uh, Brings in a reported $1.5 billion a year and operates in 429 correctional facilities. An, an earlier separate lawsuit resulted in a searing 2012 report on Corazon's work with an Idaho Department of Corrections, which found that the company's delivery of medical and mental health care either resulted in or risked serious harm to prisoners. The report states that the authorities responsible for the administration of health care were, quote, deliberately indifferent to the serious health care needs of those in their charge. Both cases ended in settlements. I just believe a society is measured by how well we treat not just everybody, but our most oppressed. So fundamentally, for me, it's a question of that. What are we willing to give folks that are the most oppressed? If it's not everything, then our society isn't as great as we say it is. America ain't all that great. So that's the news, everybody. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. At Consumer Cellular, you get the same exact coverage as the largest carriers, but for up to half the cost. Same thing, up to half the cost. Up to half the cost for the same thing. 50% the money for 100% the same thing. I hope I'm making myself clear. Consumer Cellular. When freedom calls, we're here to answer. Call us at 1-888-FREEDOM. Half the cost savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single-line 5-gigabyte data plan with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest-cost single-line postpaid unlimited talk, text, and data plan offered by T-Mobile and Verizon May 2023. Did you know that women make up 56% of law students? That's grounds for bragging rights at the dinner table for your conservative uncle who still thinks women belong in the kitchen. It's clear that the future of the legal field is female. So why are so many legal podcasts and reviews authored by men? Hi, I'm Leah Littman. I'm Kate Shaw. And with Melissa Murray, we are the hosts of Strict Scrutiny. Each week, we break down the latest headlines and biggest legal questions facing our country through the lens of diverse voices to give you expert views you won't hear anywhere else. Strict Scrutiny is your guide to the Supreme Court. New episodes drop every Monday, plus bonuses whenever the Supreme Court takes away another one of our rights. Make sure to subscribe to Strict Scrutiny wherever you get your podcasts. And now we have Governor Terry McAuliffe, the governor of Virginia. Governor, thank you for joining today. Pod Save the People. Great. It's great to be with you. So let's start about your career. You've had a long career uh, in yeah, politics. I'm old as dirt. <laughs> <laughs> I think I read that you were like a wonderkind fundraiser when you were in your early 20s. Yeah. Well, I actually started my first business when I was 14 years old. I had to in order to pay for college. Started a driveway ceiling business when I was 14 years old. By 15, I had a truck. I had a bunch of employees working for me. So I always was an entrepreneur. What was the business? It was called McAuliffe Driveway Maintenance up in Syracuse, New York. Okay. You know, the winters are so bad that you have to put that hot tar sealant on every year just to keep the driveways intact. So I would go. Nobody wanted to do it. It was hot tar. <laughs> so I went around, started with a wagon doing my neighbor's driveways. Mm-hmm. And then the next year I said, I got, I got to go big. I got to start doing parking lots. I'm 15 years old. But in order to get big 55-gallon barrels of tar, you need a huge truck. 
So I called my uncle on the dairy. I said, Uncle Bill, you must have some old trucks that the dairy doesn't. He said, yeah, I got some out in the graveyard out, you know, 20 miles away. He said, we'll go out one day. I said, I need it now. He said, well, you know, I'm busy. Well, that was enough for me. So I drove out myself, took some gas, spark plugs, um, fixed up an old truck, you know, uh, two feet high grass. There were about 20 trucks there. And I remember this deray to this day. When I turned that key and this old truck roared to life, and I'm sitting up in the cab. I'm just a little kid. And this big, huge dairy truck. I drove it home down Interstate 81. I'm honking the horn. There was a state trooper substation. I'm beeping at him. I'm waving at <laughs> I am, don't have a license. I was going to say. And I you, have no license plates. Could you be old enough to have a license no. at 15? No, I didn't, didn't have any license plates. But I was an entrepreneur. <laughs> I ultimately went and got license plates and fixed it up. So after that, was going to law school, uh, Georgetown Law School, and uh, lived in a big group house, you know, 15 guys, a lot of fun, keg in the bathroom, you know. I was about a week into law school and had a buddy of mine that worked in the Carter administration, said, you want to go work on the Carter campaign? Ah, I said, what an opportunity as a young man. I can always go to law school. So I left law school and... Uh, Ended up, I'd never raised money before. I ended up going to 40 states, ended up raising the most amount of money, ended up becoming the finance director. I think I was 23 years old for the president of the United States of America for his campaign. It was fun. I've never done it before. Uh, DeRay, what's the worst thing somebody can say to you ask for money? No. No. I wouldn't have had a date in high school if I took no for an answer. (laughs) It was just the beginning. And then I, you know, then I continued to help and I've raised a lot of money. I do it all as a volunteer. I don't take any pay for it. You know, as a young man, I got successful in life. I want to give back. I think politics is a great way to do it. Go out and support the candidates whom you're passionate about and you believe in. Now, you were also chair of the DNC. Mm-hmm. 2000, how, 2005. How was that? Probably one of the, I loved it, but it's one of the toughest jobs you can ever have because no one's ever happy, as you know what it is. But, you know, we did a couple things. I built the new headquarters. I built our first data file. I tried to bring the party into the 21st century. I changed the primary calendar. I didn't like the way the primary calendar was. Iowa and New Hampshire are very nice states, but they're not representative of our party. It's all white. So I brought up Michigan. I brought up South Carolina. I brought up Arizona. And I brought up New Mexico to have a different mixture. Obviously, South Carolina, so the African-American vote could have an early say. I wanted Michigan to have the labor voice to say it. And New Mexico you know, to have the Hispanic. We just needed to diversify our party. So, you know, we made some great fundamental changes, built the new headquarters, paid off, got us out of debt for the first time in party history. When I left office, left millions of dollars in the bank, a new voter file. So let's talk about the DNC. So as you know, people have a lot of critiques about the the party, definitely the DNC, especially with this last election. People feel like it doesn't represent them. It doesn't speak to their values, that it is outdated. Uh, What is your response to those people? Or do you do you agree with those people? Do you what is what do you say to them? I think people have an um, inflated view of what the DNC is. Um, They're not the spokespersons of the party. They're there to run infrastructure, as I've always said, they're to do the guts, to provide the data to the states voter files, run the primaries. And, um, you know, people ask me, who are the leaders of the party today? I think the leaders of our party are the grassroots activists. You know, they're the ones that are out there on the health care reform and all these other issues. They're the ones out inspiring. There is no one leader of the party today. We've got, unfortunately, we only have 16 governors today. But, you know, I would always say governors, we got to run our states. We run education. We do job creation. 
Um, you've got a lot of governors who are stepping out front. You've got leaders in the Congress. But the, if you ask me what the true power of the party, it's the activists. It's those that show up. And, you know, I mean, I went to the Women's March. I got to tell you, I've been marching for many years. It was one of the most inspirational things I have ever done in my life. Now, to push on that, though, doesn't the party control resources like money, access? That seems uh, not inconsequential, that the platform that the party puts forward comes from the DNC. uh, And people don't feel, people have not felt like their lives have been reflected in that. And what's your response to those people? Knowing that you are not in the DNC uh, chair anymore, but you were there. I would just say misplaced criticism because it's not really like they can do much for you. If you have, I, I think to people's lives, I'm not saying this because I'm a governor. I would just say a governor has the most important say over your life. They, they run the education system in your states. They run the job creation. We're the ones who build the roads. No, no offense to Congress. Congress is worthless. It does nothing. They do nothing to help me a better governor to let me compete on a global basis. They bicker, fight all day long, and they don't pass anything. I don't mean to be so tough. But it is what it is. I've been consistent on this. So, so you're not you, running for Congress anytime soon. You, yeah. It's just life's short. Help people. You know, listen, as governor, you know, we've, you know, I'm sure you've read all the stuff. We've had record job creation, record investment. You know, sitting here today, I restored more felon rights than any governor in the history of the United States of America. I'm proud of those things. I could only do that as a governor. I couldn't do that as a legislator. So with a governor, you've got a lot of executive authority. The party, the DNC, you know, they they need to give money and resources to help candidates run and win. But, you know, generally, if you run for office, you know, I had to raise my own money. I mean, generally, as a candidate, you do it yourself. It's just, it's an easy place for people to consolidate their gripe because it's an identifiable. You know, I vetoed DeRay 120 pieces of legislation, very horrible pieces of legislation, anti-women, anti-LGBT, anti-environment pro-gun, and anti-voting rights. This is not hypothetical. These bills passed my Republican legislature. Now, if I weren't sitting there as governor, I vetoed them. And I'm very proud of the most vetoes of any governor in Virginia history. And I never lost a veto, 120 to zero. But if I weren't sitting there right today, defund Planned Parenthood clinics, everybody could walk around with a switchblade. You could sell machine guns and gun stores today. In order to get an absentee ballot in Virginia, you needed to fax in a driver's license. I mean, come on. What the Republicans have very smartly done is gone in at the local level to build that local bench. They now control DeRay. Think of this. 35 states, Republican governor, Republican state house, and Republican state senate. What does that mean? In 2020, they have the new census. In 2021, they redraw every line in America. Those 35 Republican chambers will draw lines to give them more power, and the governor will sign that. We're down to 16 governors in America today. And if we don't win, we have 38 governor's races coming up between now and 2018. If we don't win a majority of these, we're out because they'll increase their power. And what the Republicans have realized It's the state and local level where they're passing these laws that really impact people's lives. Look at the voting. Look at the new voter ID laws, DeRay, and how many people weren't able to vote in 16 that were able to vote in 12. Now, before we talk about voting rights, which I want to talk about because I'm interested in the trajectory that you have been on with uh, disenfranchisement in Virginia. uh, Briefly, you are the chair of the National Governor's the NGA. That's the right. NGA. Uh, is that a, what is that? Is that a real thing? Is this just like an honorary title? Does the well, I got national- elected chair, so 
Uh, in fact, we'll meet next week in Rhode Island. We'll have uh, all the governors up there. It, it actually is not a political organization. We are nonpartisan. We're, we're apolitical. It is literally to have 50 <coughs> governors come together, DeRay, to talk. You know, obviously, you've seen how the governors have taken the lead on health care. We have gone out. I wrote a letter with Charlie Baker, Republican governor of Massachusetts, Terry McAuliffe, Democratic governor of Virginia, to Mitch McConnell saying in bipartisan way, because governors, as you know, we run the state organizations. We run the state parties. Our senators are going to listen to us because generally the governor runs that state operation. And we are very vocal, very active. And we get together, all 50 of us, and we really talk about issues you know, some stuff's not too sexy. You know, road construction and how do we, be, you know, it's best practices of the 50 states. We're all dealing with an opiate crisis today. We're all dealing with a mental health crisis. This is not a Democrat or Republican issue. This is an American issue. And when we come together to get a Democrat and a Republican to come together as a governor or get all of us to sign a letter, it's a very powerful statement because we all come from different backgrounds, different states we represent, and different political parties. Now let's talk about uh, disenfranchisement. Mm -hmm. Can you talk to me first about how this even became an issue for you? Like, how did you start to understand that this was an issue in Virginia? What did that look like? So it's because I've been active in politics for so long, you know, I have always heard about a consistent disenfranchisement of voters. Um, When I ran for governor, this was an issue that was passionate. Virginia has a horrible, horrible history, which I knew. Um, you know, so I took action myself. You know, I banned the box from any state application. There are things I could do as a governor. Uh, I took the Confederate flag off of our license plates. So there's things I could do through executive authority. But I'll be honest with you, DeRay, tra- traveling around Virginia and talking to people who had gone to prison, they had served their time, they were done with probation and parole, they're back in society, they're going to church, they're paying taxes, but they couldn't vote. It makes no sense. A judge and jury determined, you know, what that sentence would be. First of all, another issue, we're putting too many people away. But after you've paid your debt to society, why can't you vote? I just thought this was the most discriminatory action that you could do. You want people to feel good when they come back out. I want them back full partners of society. I had to Ray, I can't count how many times a father would tell me on election day he would go to a polling booth. And try and find one of those I voted stickers that fell on the ground so that he could pick it up Mm. and put it on his lapel so that he could show his children that he voted. Because he was embarrassed that he couldn't vote. It breaks your heart. You don't need to hear too many of these stories. And so, so many people came to me with their horrible stories. So, I said, I looked at it and I did incremental. You know, I uh, took nonviolent, gave your voting rights back immediately and— If you had marijuana charges, I changed all that. If you had outstanding court fines and fees, you couldn't vote. I took that away. And at some point, I just said, enough's enough. And 40 states, it's automatic. So I decided, and I knew it was hard. There's a reason why no Virginia governor has done this. And I said, we're just going to do the whole deal. And I got a leading expert, a scholar in Virginia, A.E. Dick Howard from University of Virginia Law School. He actually rewrote our Constitution in the early 70s. And he said, Governor, you have the authority. The Constitution is clear. So I stood on the steps of our Capitol on April 22nd, two years ago. And I stood in the Capitol where DeRay, we had had a state senator by the name of Glass. We had a disenfranchisement of felons. We had a poll tax and a literacy test in Virginia in 1902. His quote on the floor of the Senate, we're doing this 
to eliminate the darkie from being a political force in Virginia. That was his quote. So I got to stand at that same Capitol 114 years later, say there's a new sheriff in town. And through the swipe of pen, I restored the rights of 206,000 felons. But didn't you lose in court when it was challenged? So what happened? The Republicans immediately sued me, took me to the Supreme Court, said I didn't have the authority. Now, you know, I, I ended up going back to Georgetown Law School and DeRay in full disclosure. Uh, you know, I wasn't the best student. I, I, was, I went full-time day. I ran three companies while I was at Georgetown. I was never there. But I passed a degree. I'm a member of a bar. But you probably wouldn't <laughs> hire me to be your lawyer. I mean, full disclosure, I'm not going to kid you. And even I knew with that limited legal background of mine that the sentence the governor has the authority to restore his rights was pretty clear. But the Supreme Court, unfortunately, appointed by the legislature, so the plaintiffs were the ones who appoint them, came with a decision not based on constitutional theory at all and said, we're not going to let this governor do it. Why? Because no governor has ever done it before. Wow. Well, goodness gracious, that's not a constitutional theory. <laughs> and they said, in order to do this, he has to do it individually. So I called a press conference, and I stood in front of our civil rights memorial on our Capitol grounds and said, line them up. I'm going to sign each one individually, if that's what it takes. Well, they didn't like that either, DeRay. And they sued me again for contempt of court. I am the first Virginia governor <laughs> to be sued for contempt of court. Nice. And I won that. Case. Now, what were the, the people who were in favor of felons losing their right to vote forever? What, what were they? What was their argument? What were they saying to justify felons losing their right to vote? Well, it's a very good question. And everything, it, I'll be honest with you, I think it's racism. I mean, but what were they saying in public? Like when they were trying to they, convince Oh, they just people. hid behind this. I didn't have the authority. I overstepped my authority. Okay. So it was all about me. In overstepping my authority. But I go back to the point, 40 states in America, DeRay, it is automatic. I was making Virginia the 41st state. You would have thought I'd burn the capital of Richmond down, honestly, the way people reacted. It was the most mean-spirited, immoral action. As I say, I wasn't giving you gun rights back. I wasn't reducing your sentence. You're done. And in, in a couple states, you, know, you can vote in prison. I think it's Vermont and Maine. About 14 states, you can vote the second you walk out, and the remaining states are when you walk out and finish probation and parole. And boy, oh boy. But you know what? I took a lot of grief. It was worth every moment. There's not a day that goes by that someone doesn't stop me, not only in Virginia, but when I travel around the country, to thank me for doing it. Can you uh, register to vote in jail in Virginia? Two states allow that. Can you in Virginia? Can you register oh, to vote goodness, in jail? no. No, no, you you couldn't vote until I took my action. No, but can you now? Now that you now that you've given no, people their you have to be done with out of prison, done with probation and parole. Okay, to even register. Yeah. Okay. And what were the demographics of those who were disenfranchised? Yeah, it, that's the thing. They all assumed. You know, when I did it, they said, "Oh, he's trying to help Hillary," and it had nothing to do with any of that. A majority of them were the the, the average was a forty six year old white male. Boy, when I came out with that statistic, ooh, boy. But there was no, it strikes me, it strikes me as odd that there was no affirmative argument that the proponents of this were, were arguing. That they, were they saying that, like, if you commit certain crimes that you, that those are just so wrong that you should always not be able to vote? You had some of that. So <clears throat> some would say, well, they should just do nonviolent and not violent. But here's the problem I have with that argument. If you commit a violent crime, 
the judge and jury are going to give you a longer sentence. So that's already baked into what your sentence is. Once you're done and you're back in society, you're paying taxes. You're going to, you know, churches. You're, you're part of the community. And, and here's the point. You want everybody, when, when you're done and you're back out, I want, you know, I'd love to have you have a job and paying taxes. I want you back in society. Who doesn't? Yeah. And you wonder why recidivism rates in the country are up. You know, and I've also leaned in on juvenile justice. One of my proudest moments, DeRay, is the juvenile justice population in Virginia has dropped by half under my term. You know, because I went and visited, I think the first governor to visit, well, I went to both of them, Beaumont and Bonaire, two of these gigantic, concrete, like maximum security prisons. And I walk in, and there's these 14-year-old kids. And they wondered why our recidivism rate was so high. I said, that's it. So I said, we're going to close them down, which we're doing, and have smaller community base, closer to the families. And while they're in detention, they're going to get education. Did people fight you on this? They didn't like it, but we, I finally got it all done through the legislature because I proved to them, Duray, at the end of the day, this will save the Commonwealth money. You know, sometimes you got to be careful on the moral iron because they'll go against you <laughs> with some people. But if I can always get back to, well, this will actually save the Commonwealth money. And, uh, you know, the head of our DJJ, our team, I mean, they're spectacular. But you go in there and you sit with these kids. Okay, they made a mistake at a young age. Do you know what if you know what it is in, in Virginia, the threshold for a felony? 200 hours. Mm. Oh, wow. Now, I've tried to change this every year. 37 states, it's $1,000. I've tried to take it to $1,000. So this I means guess, that if I steal something worth over $200 or if I just steal $200, that that's a felony. $200 in a cent. You you are a, a felon. Oh, over $200. Got it. You're a felon. Got it. So you get some young kid, steals an iPhone or whatever it may be, or some sneakers or whatever it may be. You are a felon at a young age. How does that make sense? And we're 50th out of 50. We're tied with Mississippi. Wow. This is mean-spirited. It's wrong. It costs the state a lot more money. Uh, but, you know, I've tried. So, I mean, there's some things I've tried have not been successful. Well, we've been successful. You know, if I could do it through executive authority, I would, but I can't. Do and everything. I didn't ask this, and I'm not clear, so I want to ask you is um, when you restored the rights, do they automatically get the right to vote or do they still have to register? Oh, oh so here's the deal. So, what? no, you have to register. So when the court ordered me to do them individually, they actually helped me. Because when I did the mass order, it was just in the newspaper, and a lot of people didn't know and didn't go register. So now that I have to do it individually, you now get a letter from me individually with a nice seal and my signature. We also put a voter registration form in it in an envelope. But you have to go out and register. And I think in the last election, I think 26,000, 27,000 people signed up. So— uh, the next governor can change it, but he cannot take away any that I have done. Got it. So going forward, and now that I've done the whole backlog going back 50 years, I think I will always have the record as the most. But uh, going forward, the governor could decide that he doesn't want or she doesn't want to restore those rights. My lieutenant governor's running, and of course, he would continue to do it. And, you know, generally the people who get out of prison, done with probation and parole, mm, you know, maybe it's five, six hundred people a month. So, I mean, I've done the whole backlog. Now it's just folks going forward. Is there a legislative solution for this that you think one day might oh, I think be a would, win? Yeah, absolutely. It should be. It should be permanent. 
It ought to be in our Constitution. God will go ahead and put it as automatic. We ought to join okay. those other states. It shouldn't be subject to the governor. Listen, I, DeRay, I'll work with anybody. I, now, in fairness, I've worked with my legislature. It's very Republican in Virginia. But we've worked well together on economic development, on transportation. I put a billion dollars into educate K-12 last year, the largest investment ever. We did that together. So I'm willing to work with anybody. But today, Donald Trump has been nothing but an unmitigated disaster for my state. From his travel ban, as you know, I was one of the first elected officials. I went to Dulles, had a family there, detained for hours without access to a legal counsel. Two of the children had U.S. passports. His immigration policy has stifled my economy. Northern Virginia, booming economic area, small business, the engine of economic growth. 60% of the small business owners in Northern Virginia are foreign-born. And I tell you, DeRay, I visit them all the time. They own grocery stores, they, the mom and pops. They are chilling effect that none of them are expanding their contract. I told the president, you're actually hurting my economy. His health care, oh, my goodness. You know, I lose a billion four over the course, you know, of the next eight to ten years. I mean, it's devastating for me. He's got no infrastructure plans, and there's nothing on tax reform to help average working folks. So I got to tell you today, he's been another unmitigated disaster. I've been very vocal on that. Um, listen, I'll work with anybody if and it what, moves the ball and it helps people. And what about, about the election people. commission? Are you are you guys giving over your data to the Trump election commission? I think I was the first governor to come out immediately and say, not a hell will freeze over <laughs> before I will give this person data. First of all, this Chris Kovac guy the, you know, who sent the letter is the poster child for voter suppression in America and the people he's hired. I'm going to take my confidential, my important personal data of my citizens – and give it to this group that has a history of voter suppression so that they can use the data for voter suppression and gerrymandered districts, zero chance. And this all emanates from Donald Trump, who cannot get over the fact that he lost the popular vote. And he continually says that he won the popular vote, but there were three to five million people who voted illegally without one single shred of evidence. None. Do you think that we'll get through four years of him? Do you think they'll be president for four years? That's a great question. You know, there's certainly a lot of smoke out there. He's hurting. He is chilling our economy. I went to Mexico two months ago. I stood up in front of the president of the country and all the governors in his cabinet and said, let me be crystal clear. In Virginia, we build bridges for economic opportunity. We don't put walls up. Boy, the place exploded. And I got a couple deals out of it. <laughs> Sold some lumber and soybeans. It, uh, you know, I've heard that you may be running for president uh, one day. Is that is that true? It's not true. And I want to finish strong. I'm helping on this redistricting effort with President Obama and Eric Holder and Nancy Pelosi are working on these because I think these gerrymandered districts are corrosive to democracy. Uh, and I want to help these 38 governors. And then we'll see what happens after that. You know, I've, if you look at my life story, I've— you know, I never plan too far ahead. Um, I like to, you know, in fact, I love helping people. I love to have fun. You only live once. Go big or go home. And uh, that's always been my attitude. You are really close to the Clintons, and, you, and you're known for being close to the Clintons. Yeah. Do you, um, 
Do you think that that will hurt you in the future politically? So as you know, there was a lot of criticism uh, with regard to President Clinton with the crime bill that that for so many people led to mass incarceration across the country, either at the federal level or as a blueprint for states and cities. And then with Hillary during the campaign, she got similar criticism about her focus on marginalized communities. You know, I came out in support of her in the end because the platform was very strong, but there's still so many people who criticize her in the Clinton camp, and you are somebody who is known to be close to them. Uh, how, what do you make of that? And I would say, uh, not close, I'd say very close. I would consider myself one of their closest friends, and I am proud, proud of that association. Um, I'm a tough old Irish Catholic. I don't ever leave my friends to Ray. I don't. You know, everybody's with you when you're winning. I want to know who's with me when I'm down. And I do remember those eight years of President Clinton's administration with record job growth. And, you know, so listen, with, with anyone's record, there's going to be issues and blemishes that you have to deal with. People do make mistakes in business and life and politics. And as long as you realize and apologize, <laughs> I always say, show me someone's never made a mistake in life and I'll show you a liar. <laughs> it, it, you know, it's part of life. So uh, I don't ever back away, you know, and DeRay, if you and I were good friends, no matter whatever happened to you, I would be there with you. It's how I am built. And I don't know what I'm going to do in the future. But if someone doesn't like me because of my friends, then you know what? I don't want your vote. I'm sorry. Now, something else that you have been, I'm going to ask you about advice to to people as we close. But uh, you recently made the decision not to pardon somebody on death row. And I'm less interested in adjudicating that and more. So I'm interested to hear your thoughts about that. But I'm most interested in what does it mean to be somebody who is openly against the death penalty, uh, but has this incredible power, right, to save somebody's life or to pardon somebody's life? What you know, that's a role that so few individual people will ever experience, especially people who are against the death penalty. How do you reckon with that responsibility, that authority? And let me tell you, Dre, it's a tough question. <clears throat> There's not a tougher thing that a governor has to deal with. Um, two nights ago, I didn't sleep one one wink. Last night, I got very little sleep. This is not an easy decision. You've got a young man's, you know, his life is in your hands. And, uh, you know, I agonize over these decisions. But I did know when I ran for governor, you know, I've said I'm personally opposed to the death penalty, but I have to uphold the law. I took an oath of office and I put my right hand up. And if I wasn't very comfortable with that, then I shouldn't have run for governor. But I knew going in that I would have to make these tough decisions and I would have to live with those tough decisions. I think we all do as governors. But what I've done is I've tried to be consistent. And in this individual case, you know, you had a young man who, you know, I can't just go in and change what a judge and jury did without evidence. The last case I had, I mean, I've had two executions. I did commute the sentence of the last gentleman because during the sentencing phase, the prosecutor misled other jurors and basically said this gentleman had hired uh, murder for hire a second case, and he may come after you. That was all made up. So I commuted that to life in prison. I looked at this case yesterday very thoroughly. William Morva? William Morva. And what had happened is, I mean, you know, it's a tough case. Um, Very bright individual. He um, came up with a very calculated move to escape, uh, pretended an arm injury, and was being able to take him to to the hospital. 
And while he was there, he went in the bathroom and ripped off one of the metal rods on the wall and bludgeoned, shattered a police officer's face, uh, grabbed the person's gun, walked out, and in the main hallway was a hospital security guard, put his hands up and said, you know, I'm unarmed, please, 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 walked right up to his head and shot him in the head. Uh, the next day, walked up behind a police officer in the woods there by Virginia Tech. They were searching for him and shot him point blank in the back of the head. So they had the trial, and they brought three expert witnesses in to determine his mental capability. All three said there's no question he had full mental capabilities uh, and knew exactly what he was doing. I am very consistent. I have to show that something was wrong at the trial level, that there was a misplace of facts or so forth. But at the trial, I can't overturn a jury's decision if there was, it was something you know, incomplete during the jury, and that wasn't the case. Did you wait until the end? I No, I had um, I'd sent it out yesterday afternoon, but before it can finally, finally the sentence is carried out, you know, I'm on the phone. I have a direct line, and you have to give it. And I tell you, it's— it, 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 So that's real, just like in the movies. There's like a direct line oh, from the governor. Real. There's a direct line put in my office, and I sit in my office, and it, it, it's, it's hard. Now, if you were governor for seven more years— uh, what would what would you do? Like, what's the unfinished business of There's only really, the governorship? Yeah. There's really only one gigantic piece left. So we've done the education. We've reformed all the transportation. The job We're cranking on economic value. I mean, my problem to Ray in Virginia is we now have, it's not for a want of jobs. We have too many high-paying jobs we can't fill. Really? Well, I have 36,000 cyber jobs open right now in Virginia, starting pay $88,000. Hmm. You do not need a four-year degree. If Virginians are listening, you need a two-year <laughs> two degree. Where do they go to apply? Well, I mean, listen, you can just call my secretary of technology, but you just go on the web and say Virginia cyber jobs. So that's why I put the billion dollars into education. We're transforming high schools in Virginia. They don't work. DeRay, they don't work. Not in Virginia or anywhere in America. They were built in the Industrial Revolution. They're big buildings with classrooms, with seats, and you get credit for seat time. So tech training would be your that is the last the big thing. So starting this fall in Virginia, you get credit. Internships, externships, on-the-job training. I have 114 credentials. If you're willing to go get one of those, I, the state, will pay two-thirds of the cost. Oh, wow. Now, what did you, what, was there anything about being governor that surprised you? Like you hadn't been governor before this. So was there something that like you got in office and you're like, wow, I didn't know. I think about, I've talked to some governors who, um, who were surprised by like the random things about the governor's mansion, right? Or surprised by like the gazillion things they have to sign that they like didn't even know anybody ever had to sign, right? Or, um, or what a security detail in their state looked like that was different from, so like I'm anything big or small that was just like, you're like, oh, this is different. Well, the one thing on a macro sense, DeRay, that has been bothersome, because I always think the other day people will come down on the side of good policy. We're going to have differences, but you got to come together at the end and compromise. And is and you asked me what I haven't finished, and I've been a failure, and I've tried hard, but I didn't get Medicaid expansion done in Virginia. I tried hard, one for lack of trying. Can you explain what that what is Medicaid yeah, expansion? Okay, so Medicaid expansion under Obamacare is the states who sign on who, ex, who agree to expand Medicaid, the federal government will pay a hundred percent 
for a new formula of people who will be brought into Medicaid. You expand Medicaid. The federal government will pay 100% of that. And Congress is going to extend it. So for five years, they'll give you 100% of the money. Then it will go down to 97, 95, 93. And then at some point, the federal government will pay 90 and the state will have to pay 10. For Virginia, it meant that 400,000 needy people in Virginia would have gotten access to health care. 100% paid for by the federal government. 400,000 people who didn't have it already. Didn't have it. So if you didn't have it and you qualified, you would come into the program. The federal government would pay 100%. Why would anybody be against that? <laughs> well, we have forfeited $10.5 billion in Virginia. 31 states in the District of Columbia have expanded. 19 states, mostly the southern states, I think you see where we're going here, uh, have not done it. And in my state, my legislators, be honest with you, I've said it to them, they're scared of the Tea Party. Because if they vote for, quote, Obamacare, they will lose their primary and they will lose their election. I clearly said to my legislators, okay, if that's your fear, write a bill that says we can only take Medicaid expansion if not one cent of state money is ever used. So when it came off 100% DeRay, I'd work to deal with my hospitals that they'd pay the difference. Because oh, wow. they put up a dollar. They still get nine back from the federal government. And people are still against it? And they still wouldn't do it. But you know why. That's wild. I've had them come to my office in dark of night, quietly <laughs> sneak in and say, Governor, I'd vote for it tomorrow. But if I do, I'm going to lose my Tea Party primary. And I'm not going to lose my job over Barack Obama or you. But now, you know, DeRay, it ain't about me. It ain't about Barack Obama. You go with me. Two weeks, I'll be at the Ram Clinic out in Wise County, Virginia. These Virginians, many of them come out of the mountains. Doctors and nurses and dentists, they provide one day of free care. It is the saddest thing you've ever seen. And to think that these people, we've already paid for them to get health care, and they have to go through this indignity that they're put through. And if they got in their car and went 40 miles west, they're in Kentucky or 40 miles northwest in West Virginia. Those states expanded. We're the Commonwealth of Virginia. It is sad. And people have died because we didn't do this. Women didn't get early mammogram screaming or whatever it may be. And when I go to some of these clinics and I have some woman grab my arm and say, Governor, you get me health care or I'm going to be dead. I tell you, it's impactful. And, you know, he asked me what bothered me the most about governor is I tried each and every way. But just when you sometimes run up against a brick wall for partisan political reasons, it's sad. It's disappointed me more than anything else. Here's one thing that drives me wild. It's people who complain and do nothing. Get in the arena. And what bothered me was after the last election, you know, we had a lot of protesters out. We had a bunch of Richmond who got arrested. It turns out a bunch of them hadn't voted. Yeah, but to be fair, I mean, this is my last fight with President Obama in the White House is that, uh, you know, people told us to vote. And it's like I voted my entire life, still got tear gas in the middle of the street, still got arrested, still got pepper sprayed in Mesa. Voting, while important, one of the most important things we can do, didn't actually turn out to be this salve for everything. Right. So I know people who like still believe in the world and want to make it a better place. But like voting, what going to committee meetings didn't turn out to be a thing. Going to city council meetings didn't lead to change. Voting didn't change their lives. So, like, standing in the middle of the street was the only way that people, like, listened and paid attention to them. And, you know, that is real for a lot of people. Yeah, and I guess this is probably where you and I disagree. I have zero, zero tolerance for anyone who doesn't vote. But wh- why, why, what do you tell people, why should people keep voting if they vote in their entire life and nothing has changed? Well, now, come on, DeRay, you can't say that 
You can't say that independent where they, you know, political. Even your state, Medicaid. You know, there are people probably who voted for you, who voted for people who are progressive, and they still don't have health insurance, but could if the legislature would give it to them. Okay. But yeah, guess what they got? They got the Planned Parenthood clinics open. They got me to take guns off the street. They got me to protect LGBT rights. I mean, come on, you can't pick one issue. So you're saying it's not, your argument is that it's not all or nothing. It isn't all, it never is all or nothing. But if I weren't sitting there today, those 120 bills would be law today. You wouldn't have had the restoration of rights. We wouldn't have had the economy we had today, is my point. And when I come back to it, you know, people have fought and died. You know, I'm the proud parent. I got a son in the United States Marine Corps. And I got to tell you this. For any parent whose child is wearing the cloth of this country, who is putting their life on the line for us to protect these basic freedoms and liberties that we have, I'm sorry. And there have been so many people who have put their life on the line for us that I think out of respect to every man and woman who's worn the uniform and has lost their lives, has seen their bodies just riddled and ravaged, or who just served and dedicated their time, I think we owe it to them. I think that's who America is. And, you know, you know the numbers in the last election. What was it, 77,000 votes in four states? Yeah, you also come from a state that has like a deep legacy of racism and, and enslavement, right? That like yeah. there's so many people yeah. who come from yeah. a history where like they weren't valued, where the government has never they, – they've not experienced the government doing positive things for them, which is why people disinvest, right? And I think you're saying that like wholly disinvesting is also not a win. Yeah. Then, uh, the, then the other side wins. Right. Wholly disinvesting is you are abdicating your responsibility and you're ceding the field to the other team. So what do you when say? When I talk the, about being in that arena, you can't win if you're not on the playing field. So what do you say to the people though who are in the playing field and there's just like fatigue? It's only a fight. They've been fighting. They've been fighting. They've been fighting. Things haven't changed. What, what is your? What, how are you telling them to keep fighting? Yeah, but Duray, first of all, I'm talking about voting. I'm talking about taking 30 minutes of your life. Yeah, but if you're a if you're a single parent, have two jobs, and the choice is either like take off this job today and vote, yep. but I voted for five years and it hasn't, nothing's really changed, then like why should I do it you again? You don't think DeRay having President Obama in office changed people's lives? No, I I'm asking you, what are you telling? What are you telling the people who who are fresh? I mean, I'm voting, but I get why people aren't voting and whether I voted for the president or not. But like, why should people vote for city council and governor? There are a lot of people who voted forever. They voted in 10 elections and yeah. like, yeah, still a yeah. pretty crappy world for them. Yeah, we are. In fact, it was a story out the other day. Virginia happens. It was a number of people vote and they had all these different permutations. The most patriotic state in America. Isn't there a KKK rally being planned in your state? It is, yeah. Well, it's a white supremacist group, a white nationalist group, I think they're called. What's your what's your take on that? Disgraceful. Um, listen, I'm a big supporter of free speech, but boy, I tell you this. I, I mean, I'm public. I gave a statement yesterday on it. To come into my state, to bring your hate, spew your hate. Oh, I, I mean, I just, I condemn it. And then last question is, what's your advice to people who want to run for office? You have run for office and been successful. You've been in politics for yeah. more than half of my, you know, more than my life in, in some ways. Yeah, so what's your what's your advice to people? I would always argue to do it. And listen, I've won and I've lost. I mean, I ran in 09 and I got crushed. But you know what, DeRay? I got out of bed the next day, endorsed the guy who beat me badly, worked my heart out for him, and he ended up losing the general. 
And, you know, I spent the next four years traveling, the, crisscrossing the state. Now I'm the 72nd governor of the Commonwealth of Virginia. So you don't always win. I always like to tell people you can't win if you're not in the playing field. But there's something going on in Virginia today. Uh, we have a record number of candidates running. We have a record number of women candidates running. And I think a lot of it, obviously, is Trump. I mean, the guy's been a disaster. And uh, people are upset about the election. And the way to, you know, fuel that passion, I think, is, and that's why I love the grassroots. I love it when they come out. And they've been raising holy heck on health care and immigration and the travel ban. And thank goodness for them because they've inspired a lot of other folks to come out, which I think has really made an impact you know, on these uh, folks up in the in the Senate and the House who got to vote on this type of stuff. Well, I think that's it. Thanks for joining us today. Great. Thank you. Honored to be with you. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Stay tuned. There's more to come. Hello, America. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater. And this is your wake-up call. If you don't have Consumer Cellular yet, now is the perfect time to switch and save. For a limited time, new customers can get wireless service for as low as $15 a month for your first year. Yep, the same exact nationwide coverage as the leading carriers for $15 a month for an entire year. What are you waiting for? Call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com and use code RADIO15. See ConsumerCellular.com slash FirstYear15 for promotional details. Did you know that women make up 56% of law students? That's grounds for bragging rights at the dinner table for your conservative uncle who still thinks women belong in the kitchen. It's clear that the future of the legal field is female. So why are so many legal podcasts and reviews authored by men? Hi, I'm Leah Littman. I'm Kate Shaw. And with Melissa Murray, we are the hosts of Strict Scrutiny. Each week, we break down the latest headlines and biggest legal questions facing our country through the lens of diverse voices to give you expert views you won't hear anywhere else. Strict Scrutiny is your guide to the Supreme Court. New episodes drop every Monday, plus bonuses whenever the Supreme Court takes away another one of our rights. Make sure to subscribe to Strict Scrutiny wherever you get your podcasts. And now a conversation with Nikita Oliver, who's running to be the next mayor of Seattle. Nikita Oliver, it is an honor to have you on Pod Save the People today. Peace, peace. Thank you for having me. So you are running for mayor. I am running for mayor of Seattle. Let's just start with why. Like, why now? Why you? Why Seattle? Like, why? Yeah, you know, um, it wasn't long after the election that a a group of organizers and movement builders in Seattle, uh, you know, we started to see a lot of political apathy in our city uh, and a city that has a lot of substantive issues around affordability, around access, around equity. I mean, this city is growing wealthier and wider each year. Our median income will soon be $100,000. And for many of us, especially folks of color, other economically disenfranchised peoples in this city, we just simply can't afford to live here. And so uh, instead of getting into that political apathy, we did what we do best. We started organizing, started meeting on a regular basis, talking about our philosophy and our vision for our city. And as a result, that came down to why are we relying on career politicians to make the changes that we, as those most impacted by the issues in the city, could actually make better? And what can we do to start running our own everyday residents for office? And so we constructed uh, the People's Party as a way of creating our own institutional knowledge around how to do grassroots organizing around getting people elected to political office so we can really ensure that 
the issues that are facing the grassroots and facing the people pushing the margin in our city actually get centered in the conversation, not just in terms of talking about it, but in, in actually developing effective policy that get implemented well and transforms our city. But why me? Uh, you know, I ask that question sometimes. Uh, but what it came down to was we had a selection process where we just started putting out the names of people that we respected in our city as leaders who showed accountability integrity, transparency, um, and a commitment to our values and philosophy as grassroots organizers. And as much as I fought it, my name kept popping up on that list. And a number of our aunties and our elders and our young people, because I'm an educator um, and I work in our schools, I also work uh, in transforming our, our juvenile justice or justice criminal legal system here. And as a result, um, you know, it was really the voice of young people telling me that if you ran for mayor of our city, I'd actually have something to look forward to and someone I believed in in an office in our city that can make real change. And I can't say no to young people when it comes to that. And as a result, I, I committed to it. Uh, but I told folks the only way I would run was if we had a body willing to hold me accountable and more importantly, willing to call me out if they saw me uh, leaving the roots of what we set out to do and told them that I want to change the office. I don't want to be changed by the office. And too many times that we've seen black and brown folks get into office and they forget where they came from and they forget why, why their community got them there in the first place. And so uh, the People's Party committed to being that body for me and committed to calling me out in whatever way necessary if, you know, by chance I forgot where I came from or I forget. I, I don't intend to, but, you know, political office is isolating and we want to transform that. Now, you're also a singer and a poet, and I, I think I read that you identify as a queer woman of color. Yeah, all that's true. So, Nikita, you are running for office, and I, I met, imagine that there are a lot of people out there who are like, I like her, I believe in what she believes in, but she's just not yet ready to lead a city. Like, she should start somewhere else. She should run for a school board or city council or the parks commission or some other lower um, lower body. like. What do you say to those people who like you and like your ideas, but don't think you're ready to lead a city? First of all, we've spent too long relying upon career politicians to make the changes that really have to be made by the people of our city who are most impacted by the systems of our city. And by most impacted, I mean those most negatively impacted, who really understand um, the negative implications of, of bad policies, policies that sound progressive, but when they finish out, they really don't end up with progressive action happening. And we've created this notion that to be an effective executive, that you have to have held a legislative role, or you have to have had gone through particular pathways to do the executive office well. And my response to those folks is that I probably understand the system of our city better than any of these executives or legislators do, because I've had to learn their job as well as learn my job as an organizer and as a lawyer, because I'm also an attorney, um, and as an activist, that I understand all the policy analysis work, while also understand what it takes to write an ordinance, what it takes to shift the budget. When I go to electives and I ask for things on behalf of a coalition, I understand their policy and the policy I'm asking for much better than they do because I have to be able to articulate to them the policy difference and the implementation difference, and then I have to be able to move them towards seeing what myself and the coalition see. And so that's the work that I've been doing in our city for almost 14 years. And I think that that puts me 
Rather, I know that puts me in a better position to lead our city than someone who spent their entire life inside of the institution for their body of work. My body of work includes coalition building, community work, but also working directly with electives and understanding policy and legislation inside and out. Now, there are a lot of that makes sense to me. There are a lot of people I ran for mayor in Baltimore, as as you know, and um, people mm-hmm. said to me often, but DeRay, like activists, their whole role is to push on the outside, right? That that's what activists do, that that you are selling out by by wanting to be on the inside because that's not where you can be the most effective, that the most effective is on the outside. What do you say to those people? You know, I would tell folks that um, the role of an activist is to, this is where I actually distinguish myself from just being an activist. I'm an organizer. And to be an organizer, you have to know how to coalition build. Coalition building means that you bring people who might all see a a goal that they all want to achieve, but they're going to use a different set of skills and tactics to get there. And to be honest, they may not all agree on what tactic needs to be used. And my role as a coalition builder and as an organizer is to help all of those folks use their different skill sets so we can all get to the goal, to synergize. And that's effectively what a mayor and our city needs to be able to do right now. Our development is out of control in a way that is allowing affordability to get away from us. It's, it's creating inequity and increasing the, the income gap in our city because we don't ask more of developers, but it's because we've had leadership that does not know how to ask the right questions and bring the right coalition to the table. And I've literally spent all of my work doing that. And so while I understand pushing from the outside, I also understand what it is to do the work on the inside. Uh, While working as an activist and an organizer, I've also worked as an attorney. And in the courtroom, there are particular rules I have to follow because they benefit my client. At the end of the day, when I act as an attorney, I'm not acting on my own behalf. I'm acting on the behalf of someone else. And so I have to know how to use uh, the rules and the tools inside the house to get done what needs to happen in the house. But that doesn't mean I don't know how to walk outside and push on the walls from outside too, which is what I think makes my skill set so incredibly unique and sets me up as the right person for what Seattle needs right now is I am a coalition builder, but I understand the various tools and roles that our city utilizes to make things happen and have the vision to be able to synergize that. But I also can acknowledge that the work that our city needs to do is not going to be done by one person. I'm not looking to create the Obama effect where at the end of eight years, we're all like, well, wait, he didn't do exactly what we thought he was going to do. We expected Obama would do things by himself. And what we're building here is a grassroots movement around this campaign where we're, we're building a body of people to do the work that is necessary to not just make the policy shift we need to make, but the cultural shift that Seattle needs to make. We talk progress but we don't have progressive actions to meet that talk. And we have to start transforming that within the culture of our city. Now, if you had to think about two issues that you think would be top of mind, uh, I'm, I'm, I know I've looked up the platform of the People's Party. I've seen some interviews that you've done. So I know that there are way more than two issues that are top of mind for people <laughs> in Seattle. Uh, there are way more than two issues that, that you talk about regularly. But um, if you had to think about, if you had to talk to me, could you talk to me about two issues that you think are really important uh, for the city of Seattle that you would take in, uh, take a progressive stance on as, as mayor? The first is affordability, uh, which attaches to two huge issues in our city. It is the issue of displacement of people who have called this home. So people who have lived here for 30 years are being pushed out rapidly, especially black and brown folks, because the cost of the city keeps going up. 
And the only place where you're seeing drastic income increases is really amongst uh, white professionals. And we really have to tackle our housing market. We have to make sure that we really treat housing as a human human right. Um, and part of our affordability issue is we're in a state of emergency around homelessness. We have 11,000 people in our city living uh, without adequate quality shelter, 5,500 of whom are literally sleeping either in tents or under uh, under bridges wow. and viaducts. And so in one of the wealthiest cities in the United States, this is simply unacceptable. Uh, the second issue that I intend to tackle is we have a school district that has a $74 million deficit in a county that is building a new $233 million youth jail. Now, if our school district has a deficit uh, within our city, but our county can afford to build a new youth jail, what we're doing is we're investing and doubling down on the wrong end of the school to prison pipeline. And I know that, that you've been an educator, so you understand what happens when we allow our school district to suffer. We're inevitably going to be putting young people into the school to prison pipeline, into the jail system, uh, which, in my opinion, creates all kinds of public safety and public health issues that we could actually prevent by ensuring that our school system has access to the resources that it needs. And there are actual parts of our school system that our city has been responsible for funding, like wraparound services and family support workers, uh, that help with the fact that we have 3,000 young people that are living outside, that are living unsheltered in our city. Um, And we just simply can't allow that to stand. So we need to bolster access to public housing and the development of affordable housing. And then we need to ensure that our school system is able to make sure that every young person and every family receives the educational opportunity that is constitutionally mandated in this state. Now, a lot of people are running for mayor. So why you? There are 21 people running for mayor. So uh, I declared on March 8th with the Seattle People's Party, which is uh, which was International Women's Day. And we did that very intentionally because Seattle has not had a woman as mayor in 91 years. So the last woman as mayor was Bertha Landis Knight, and she was only in office for two years in 1926. And we've never had a woman of color as mayor. And so we declared on that day to start getting that message out, to get people to start acknowledging the gender inequity that exists in our city government. Uh, We also declared prior to some allegations coming out against the current mayor that eventually forced him to have to drop out of the race because it was distracting from the substantive issues. And during that time, tons of candidates decided to enter the race after the incumbent, who was basically seen as undefeatable, uh, appeared to be defeatable. And so I tell you that because I think it's important to acknowledge that myself and, and my campaign launched when there were no challengers to him. And in fact, uh, many of the mainstream publications here named me as the most formidable challenger to the incumbent. The reason I think I represent an opportunity to make a huge change in the way that we do things in Seattle is because going back to that prior conversation, I'm not a career politician. And to be honest, it has not been my dream in life to be an elected. I love working with young people. I love being an educator. I love being able to redistribute legal knowledge to communities that have not had access to it. But I also know having these skills makes me the sort of person who can work closely with different types of communities to really transform Seattle. We need someone who has a systems transformation mentality who also can think intersectionally. And that's what Seattle is lacking, is the ability to think about race, class, gender, and religion and see how they intersect and how they impact our city. We have a race and social justice initiative 
And as a city, we talk a lot about race and equity, but we've never had a woman of color serve in the highest office in our city. And what this campaign is doing is it's actually forcing our city to unearth its own implicit bias and really start thinking about the stories that we tell about people. And my interest um, is really in seeing how in the next four to eight years, we can turn our city around on issues like affordability and education, the criminal legal system. I mean, we have a police force that's under consent decree for excessive use of force and possible racial bias. And we honestly didn't start making great strides on that until four years into the consent decree. And a part of that was because we did not have leadership that was impacted by that police terrorism. And so getting more folks into office in our city uh, who share these experiences, but also who share a common line of values and philosophy about how we organize and how we transform our city is pertinent. We've raised uh, over $50,000 with over 900 contributors, not taking any corporate donations and running as an independent. And our, our average contribution is about $52, which says to me, it's everyday people that are donating to the campaign. We have over a thousand volunteers and that's really dynamic. And it's allowing us to build a base to really think about the future and the vision of our city. Uh, and regardless of whether or not I win, I'm excited to continue to work with this body of folks to hold accountable whoever gets in that office. Cool. Now, where can people go uh, to learn more, to donate, to get involved and help uh, volunteer no matter where they are in the country? Where can people go for more information and how can people follow you? So there are lots of options on Facebook. You can follow the Seattle People's Party and you can follow Nikita Oliver for mayor. On Twitter, you can follow at Nikita Oliver. Nikita Oliver spelled N-I-K-K-I-T-A-O-L-I-V-E-R. And you can go to our website, which is www.nikitaoliverformayor.com. And you can make donations. You can join our newsletter. You can sign up to volunteer. One of the easiest ways to, to help us continue to get our, our message out is, is signal boost. So share our posts. Uh, and the other is to donate. You know, people who are outside that are watching this campaign who are outside of Seattle can absolutely donate to the campaign. And uh, if you know people who live in Seattle, convince them to look at us and then get them to vote for us. Cool. Well, thank you so much, Nikita, for joining me on this episode of Pod Save the People. I consider you a friend of the pod and hope to have you back uh, soon. Thank you so much for your time. Well, that's it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Pod Save the People. Make sure that you tell a friend, make sure that you share it, and make sure that you rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it is uh, Spotify or whether it's Apple Podcasts. And I'll see you next week.